Hi, this is Liz Ryan, and this is the Work-Related Podcast, Episode 6. We're talking about workplace topics and career and leadership topics and overarching theme, how to make work human. Got some questions to answer today from readers and listeners. And if you have a question for me, you can send it to me at support at humanworkplace.com and I'll try to answer it in an upcoming podcast. So I got a question about pre-employment tests. Hi Liz, how do you feel about pre-employment psych and personality tests and how should job seekers deal with requests to take that type of test in the recruiting process? That's a great question. Personality tests and tests in general in the recruiting process are really common. And I just want to stop right there and comment on that. And then we'll get into what to do when you're asked or required to do one of these tests. Um, you know, I'm an HR person for thousands of years and I truly don't get the love affair with these pre-employment tests of any type, of any type, right? Uh, 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 tests of uh, competencies or, or proficiencies tests of uh, writing skills, uh, writing samples required of public relations people or uh, you know editors and so on like that. Here's the thing. They say the medium is the message, right? Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. When you when you ask somebody to do something, that's a very big statement, okay? And so, Embedding a test in your recruiting process, a test of any kind, it's not that you can't do it, of course, and there could be situations where it's essential to, to include a test for safety reasons, for example. Um, but embedding a test in your recruiting process, any kind of test, is a real statement about the relationship between the employer and the prospective employee, the candidate. So you want to really think about your usage of tests in the recruiting process and, and how important it is. It shouldn't be thoughtless. It shouldn't be a vendor came to us and said, here's this great test and it's going to help you make better hires. Sure, let's implement this test as part of our recruiting process. It's a very big statement and it will drive candidates away. Not because they are afraid they can't pass the test, because they don't like the statement about the relationship that you intend to have or the relationship that you are actually imposing on the candidate right now by giving them this test. Give you an example. I'm an HR person. If I were applying for an HR job and they said to me, here's a test you need to take, I'd be out of there so fast. And most HR people I know would say the same. You can hire somebody else. Don't hire me because I what you can talk to me. You can ask me what I know about HR and leadership. You can give me a hypothetical situation to address and we can talk about it like adults, but giving me a test like I'm a kid in school to test my proficiency in a topic that I've been working in for 30 years, that's, that's pretty intense. And that would say to me, how could I run HR for this company when this is the way they view candidates? Like sit and take a test. We don't know if you know anything. You, want, you don't know if I know anything, then, then talk to me, right? So it's a, it's a big decision to make. And here's the other thing. In general, recruiting processes are too slow. They're too slow. It takes way too long to get a new person on board and we lose candidates at every stop, uh, at every step in the hiring process. 
people we would rather not lose. We would rather have them stay in the pipeline, but they go because we as employers are too slow and too stodgy and we have too many gates and that's bad for us. Why on earth would we want to add another test? Like I said, there could be situations you want to work for the, for the fire department, right? You, you, you have to know what you're doing. If they're not intending to train you, you better know how to handle a fire, how to put out a fire, how to be safe, etc. Maybe there's a some kind of an exam, a practical exam, or something like that. Okay. If you're going to dr- drive a public bus and people are going to be on the bus, you have to be able to drive safely. And maybe there's a test about uh, traffic safety laws and that sort of thing. There are situations where maybe a test is absolutely in, uh, important because of safety reasons. And, and then I would say, then let's do it. But otherwise, a lot, the vast majority in my experience of pre-employment tests are not necessary. And therefore, they're an impediment to making great hires and making great hires efficiently and quickly. Uh, and then personality tests and so-called you know, psych tests, psychological tests, are, are particularly unfortunate uh, because there's, they're not validated. What does validation mean in, in a test? It means that not just the vendor that made the test, but each employer that's considering using the test has actually used this test in their employment practice, in their hiring practice, in the pipeline. You take this test and then they hire a bunch of people who pass the test and who didn't pass the test, and they compare their performance six months or a year down the road. Virtually no one does that. They implement the test and they immediately make hiring decisions based on the test. So they're never validating whether it has any correlation to performance on the job. Even if they did, that that correlation is going to be very iffy because the predisposition to say, well, the people that took, that passed the test did a far better job, right? So it's always suspect, but the biggest problem, the biggest problem with psych tests, personality tests, is that they're so transparently not a good predictor of someone's performance on the job. And they're very insulting. I just really always want to take it back to these are human to human relationships, not a monolithic corporation uh, encountering and, and creating a relationship with the person. If, if the idea is that the it's the organization, the entity that has a relationship with an employee, then we're already sunk. We can't go anywhere with that. It has to be person to person. Nobody, nobody wants to have a relationship with a huge corporation. That's never going to be validating. That's never going to be warm. It's never going to be supportive. It has to be person to person. And I personally would not give somebody a psychological test or a personality test to take. And I hope that you would also feel the same way and say, no, that there is not enough reason to bring a test into our recruiting process uh, in terms of, of having a better hiring result to justify the, the damage that the test does to your employer brand to relationships with individual candidates and to the um, and to the human feeling and the warmth in your in your uh, hiring system, it's hard to hire good people, and I don't know why anybody would add gates would add uh, baggage to that, particularly a test that's supposed to say, if you have this type of personality, you'll be a good employee. And if you have that type of personality, you won't. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I do have to hand it to these vendors 
who have been so successful getting HR departments to, to decide to put a test into their hiring process. Now let's talk about writing tests because a lot of people write to me and defend their use of writing tests and writing samples for people applying for like public relations jobs or, or something like that. Um, has a person done this work before? Have you seen some of their samples from their past jobs? If you like their samples and you've talked to them about them and you understand the thought process that got this writer to write a press release or write a piece of marketing, uh, a collateral or a, an event invitation or a speech for whatever it is, then, you know, it's hard to imagine how like giving them a writing test right now would be a good thing. Think about it. When you write something for publication or you write something for distribution, dissemination, you have spell check. You have, you have tools. The first thing that you write is not published as is in raw form, unedited. So what is the point of the writing test? Did you think that they literally falsified the idea that they could write at all, that they could write a paragraph? That's pretty intense. If you get to that level of mistrust, then really why would you believe anything on the person's resume? Or why would you believe anything they tell you in the interview? That's kind of a toxic level of mistrust. I don't believe that you can write period. Well, look at my LinkedIn profile. Look at my resume. Ask me about it. Look at my portfolio. Look at my history. The other tests that people really vigorously defend are coding tests. And that, honestly, I cannot speak to that. We, in my experience working for tech firms, hiring the gazillions of software folks, we do not do coding tests, but you know, I can't, I don't know. I, I couldn't really say whether that's an important or essential step in the hiring process, but I know it will drive certain people away. Very experienced people that don't need to take the test. They don't need to, at this date, at this point in their career, they don't need to justify what they've done based on taking a coding test for you. They just won't do it, they'll be gone. I don't know if you can really afford to drive people away like that. You can sit there and ask them a coding question, one question. How would you solve this problem? Why do you have to give them a coding test? All right, so I'm not a fan. Short answer. So what do you do if you run into these pre-employment tests? Uh, most people that use them, most organizations that use tests are going to insist that you take the test and they won't allow you to proceed in the hiring process unless you do it. So it's always this, uh, it's always this angel on one shoulder and devil on the other shoulder. Should I just do this test? You know, do I want this job enough or should I go somewhere else. If you're in an industry or a function where tests are ubiquitous, they just always have tests and you probably have to take the test unless you, you know, decide to go work for yourself, which is certainly a decision more and more people are making. But yeah, uh, pre-employment tests, I don't understand the paradigm. I don't understand the thought process. Personally, very focused on engaging people early in the hiring process, really having them feel like we care about them beyond uh, just their, you know, what's on their resume. I would, I would not recommend that you add any steps to your hiring process, particularly a step that says, you know, sit down at this desk and take this test because we're, we're not convinced that you can do the things that you said you could do. Okay. Hi, Liz. What do I do about wage theft? Wow. That's a big topic, wage theft, but it is a huge, huge problem at the same time. Wage theft is uh, unfortunately extremely common. Wage theft means that you are not getting paid um, the 
wages or salary that you should be getting paid for doing your work. Okay, uh, just pulled up Google New York. Okay, an estimated 2.1 million New Yorkers are victims of wage theft annually, cheated out of a cumulative 3.2 billion in wages and benefits they are owed. Now I gotta look up how many people live in New York. <laughs> uh, New York State, maybe they're talking about 20 million. So 10%, 10%, nice. Let's see, are we talking about the city or the state of New York? Now I have to look. New York Times articles, shocking extent of wage theft, other workplace abuses. Oh, New York City, statewide. Oh, this is statewide. Okay, so yeah, 10%. Imagine, that's not 10% of working people. That's 10% of every single person lives in New York State, including babies. So that's more than 10% of, of working people. Victims of wage theft. So you really do have to check everything. You have to check your timesheet, take a screenshot before you submit a timesheet. If you Let's say your company changed payroll processors at some point. You better take screenshots of everything because you won't have access to that old information necessarily when your company switches over to a new payroll processing company. You must be vigilant regarding wage theft. If your paycheck is off, you're going to let your payroll department know, whoever's the person, HR or payroll, that looks after wages and salaries. You're going to say, hey, my paycheck is off. It should be X. It's Y. Here's my information. Uh, let me know what you think. And if it's pervasive or if you can't get it fixed, then you have to go to your state. In, this, in, the, in the United States, we have state departments of labor, and they have uh, wage in our divisions. Look at that. I typed in Department of Labor in my little Google search bar and the first thing that came up, wage theft. How about that? Department of Labor, wage theft. It's a real thing. You have to be ready to, uh, to, to make a case to, to get your money back. You have to be ready to document. One of the biggest um, sources of wage theft is misclassification of employees. So it means that if someone is on salary, meaning they can't get overtime in the United States, they're typically not able to get overtime regardless how many hours they work, but maybe they should not be on salary based on the laws in the United States. They should actually be paid on an hourly basis where they can get overtime and overtime is time and a half. So if your regular wage is $20 an hour, you would get $30 an hour uh, when you're on overtime, but you're not going to get that overtime if you're classified as a salaried employee and you can be misclassified because not every single employee, of course, uh, can legally be called uh, a salaried employee. There are certain requirements. And if, you're, if your job doesn't meet those requirements, then you have to be hourly and you should be getting overtime. So I will go into that in another podcast, but I want you to be aware of the fact that misclassification of employees as salaried when they really should be hourly is one of the biggest uh, spots where wage theft comes from. And others are just uh, misprocessing, improper processing of timesheets and time cards um, and improper payment of commissions and bonuses and things. So you got to be on the lookout for wage theft, sadly. And, and the place to complain beyond your own employer's payroll department is your state. In the United States, it's going to be your state 
Department of Labor, and there's probably uh, undoubtedly a wage and hour department or division there, and they will probably have a form, a web form that you can complete that says, look, you know, my payrolls have been messed up. All right. So, Liz, what are some simple ways to improve a company culture? Oh, I just did a LinkedIn Live about this topic a couple days ago. A lot of different words are used or applied to how to make a culture better. Engagement, increase employee engagement, or increase retention, which means people staying on the payroll and not leaving, um, or just improve the energy in the place. But there are some simple ways to, to improve a culture almost regardless of what your job is, at least around you, right? At least around you. You don't have to change an entire huge corporation, their culture. It's really hard to do that unless you're very highly placed in the, in the organization. But you can, you can improve, potentially improve the culture around you to some degree. And why would you want to do that, right? Well, you might want to do it just to be able to stay in the job longer. You might want to do it for your health, just for your peace of mind or to improve the situation for yourself and your coworkers. So the very first thing to do is to remember when you go to work that your feeling good is a massively important goal every single day. You feeling good is, a, is the goal. That's the goal, right? That comes before achieving the company's uh, whatever, their metrics, achieving their quarterly targets. That's important, but you feeling good is, is more important. So managing to the degree that you can, and not every job lets you do this, but managing your own welfare, meaning getting up and stretching if you're sitting down or, or just deep breathing, taking care of yourself is the number one thing because you can't help anybody else and you can't help the culture if you yourself are not feeling good. And, and, and some jobs make it easy, some jobs make it hard. You know, it's different. Everybody's situation is different. But just taking care of the best you can of your body, hydrating, staying hydrated. I just went to the doctor yesterday, and he says, what do you, not drink water? <laughs> I took a blood test. So you're so dehydrated. I said, that's funny. I lived in Colorado for 20 years where they just are always telling you drink water, and everybody has water in their car, and you just... People are always drinking water because the sun's beating down all the time and it's a high desert. I moved and everyone's not always drinking water all the time. I forgot about it. He said, okay, you got to drink a lot more water. That's important for everybody. Hydration, breathing, right? Stretching. Uh, it's, it's taking care of yourself first and creating that space around you that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of myself. Such that if the job really doesn't let me take care of myself at a basic level day to day, probably have to think about getting a different job. But let's say that you can do that. So you kind of feel okay physically yourself, but you want to improve the situation around you. The first thing that you're going to do is look at reinforcing the people around you, which is really good for them. And it also feels really good for you. Thanks so much for helping me with that. Hey, you're awesome. I really appreciate it. How are you doing today? We often think, I don't have it. I don't have the resources to, to reinforce people around me. That's that I'm depleted. Okay, great. So it's going to be taking care of yourself until you have that. Because it's a really empowering thing and feels good to reinforce people around you. If the whole day at work is just recovering from yesterday at work 
then it's gonna you're it's gonna be really hard to get to the place where you can feel okay enough to help the people around you. So it might not be possible to shift that culture far enough to make it to make it tenable, to make it a place where you could stay. But but in many situations you can do that and you say, wow, it actually feels really good to go to work and take care of myself and also to some degree, you know, take care of and help the people around me. Language at work is hugely important, all of us, but particularly people in leadership and HR who have more control about the kind of language that's flowing in the company. What do I mean by language? Memos, emails, um, posters on the wall, um, instant messages, however people communicate, language is incredibly important in the idea of creating a, a trusting and human culture. Anytime a memo can be shifted from, it has come to my attention, like what, that's 1930s, really businessy, imperious language. We don't want to say that, say, hey, you know, I heard this was an issue. What do you think? Or, you know, what should we do? Asking for opinions is better than just pronouncements. Um, a, a, a warm language is better than harsh language, obviously but we're in a hurry and we're at work and we say, there's a script for this. I'm just going to use the script. No, don't use the script. Stay human. Stay human. We don't want any memos to come out saying from the management. That's a, come on. There's no such thing. Always a person's name. Explain. You have some kind of policy change. You briefly explain why it's necessary. So rather than saying effective April 15th, the back entrance will no longer be used by employees coming from the parking lot. What will, so that's just that. Is there any explanation? Yes. Hi, team. Hi, folks. Um, a lot of people were concerned about that back entrance being open to the public, and it, that makes total sense. So while we're waiting to install a card reader on that door, we're going to have everybody go around to the front. Sorry for the inconvenience. It's a safety thing, and I know you, you, we all care about safety and people feeling comfortable at work. Boom. Just humanize it. Humanize the language. That is one of the most important things HR people can do and communications people and anybody who's in a position to send out memos and pronouncements to other people. Another one is transparency. Put a salary range in a job ad right there, that step right there. Salary range in the job ads, every job ad, then people are like, great. They're not afraid to say what they pay. It makes everybody feel more trusted and trusting. I love to see a salary range in a job ad. As long as it's a reasonable range, we're paying people coming into this job, uh, you know, 18 to $20 an hour, not 18 to $50 an hour. Then we lose faith in the range because it's not a range. It's so wide. And the third one is if you are involved with culture, retention, engagement, if that's part of your job, take care of managers take care of employees, of course, but managers have so much weight, so much leverage, make sure managers feel supported so that they can in turn, like I said about us personally, they're okay enough to give the same kind of good energy to their employees. The reason why so many managers act brusque and, un and unfriendly and come down too hard on employees and generally don't do a great job of managing is because they're so stressed out. If they weren't so stressed out, then they wouldn't be that way. They'd be much better managers. So supporting managers is a really big part. I felt like it was a big part of my job. And I think it's a big part of everyone's job that is involved with culture and, and teamwork and, and energy at work. 
Okie doke, we got one more question in the podcast. And the question is, is working from home bad for your career? Okay. A lot of people are saying there's so much anti-remote work (laughs) stuff out in social media right now. It's actually exhausting. It's like there's this... There's this movement in the media fueled by, you know, various interests um, it, it, to, to, to make an editorial theme out of how work from home is bad. Now, come on. People have been working from home and working remotely since the 80s, at least, at least. And COVID really showed us that working from home is pretty practical and doesn't really hurt an organization uh, as long as jobs can be performed from home, but it's really good for employees. And, and it's got some leaders really freaked out, a lot of them. Like, no, you have to come back to the office. Okay, why? What's the business case? You require a business case for everything, even the purchase of a laptop. What's the business case for ordering people to go through a daily commute, especially five days a week? There's no business case. They just want it that way. So there's a lot of this this you know propaganda coming out against work from home. And remote work and one of the pieces of propaganda is oh it's bad for your career how can working from home be bad for your career if you're if you're doing a great job well because out of sight out of mind oh please now let's break this down here in one minute does your organization have remote offices all over the place in paris and singapore and here and there yeah of course they do oh okay great so they have people working everywhere, but out of sight is out of mind. So somebody has to see your face. It doesn't have to be your boss or your VP. It just has to be somebody. If, as long as somebody sees your face, then there's no damage to your career, right? But if nobody sees your face, all of a sudden your career is at risk. How insane is that? How goofy is that? It makes no sense. That's not a logical argument. You could thrive working remotely in an office with a few other people, but as soon as you're by yourself in your house, now your career cannot thrive. Come on. Come on, we're, we're smarter than that. We're all smarter than that. Working from home is not bad for your career. If working from home would be bad for your career because in your organization, out of sight, out of mind, and nobody, they forget you're there, that would be an unhealthy organization. So the thing to fix is not the work from home aspect, but actually the culture and what they value. You know what I'm saying? All right, two things. A lot of people could use help with their career at any point, uh, help with the job search, help figuring out what they should do next in their career, help navigating uh, their own internal situation at their current job, maybe trying to move up, or help starting their own business. And I have trained a group of amazing career coaches to help people through these transitions. Those coaches are profiled in a directory on our site. It's humanworkplace.com. And to find the directory, you're going to go to humanworkplace.com slash directory. And you'll see the career coaches there. And you can reach out to them and get help with your career issues. And I hope you will because they're just fantastic career coaches. And it, and it could be, make a really big difference for you to work with someone, with a career coach, who can guide you through these transitions and help you get the job and have you the career you that you deserve. And likewise, if you are looking at starting your own business and you'd like to learn more about becoming a career coach with my help, then reach out to me, please, at support at humanworkplace.com. And I'll see you next week.